Good evening and uh, welcome everybody to um, this year's installment of the August Kant Memorial Lecture. Uh, can everybody hear me well? Is the microphone good? Yeah. Great. So my name is Johanna Thoma. I'm uh, an assistant professor at the Department of uh, Philosophy, Logic and Scientific Method here at the LSE and I'm going to be the chair for tonight's lecture. The annual lecture series was endowed by the London Positivist Society and in it the philosophy department aims to um, honor the legacy of Auguste Kant by inviting a leading scholar in the philosophy of social sciences uh, kind of broadly construed. So uh, in recent years we've had John Elster, Philip van Parijs, Francis Kam and Joshua Cohen. Um, I must admit I was slightly intimidated when I read that the history of the August Kant lecture started with Michael Oakeshott introducing Isaiah Berlin in the very first installment of this lecture in 1953. But then I learned that uh, Oakeshott's introduction of Berlin consisted mostly of thinly veiled ridicule, both of Berlin and of August Kant, whose date of death he actually got wrong, which then caused Berlin to give what he later thought was the worst lecture of his life. So uh, I think you'll all be glad to hear that I won't even attempt to follow in those footsteps tonight. Um, <laughs> and in fact, I'm extremely honored to be given the chance to introduce Professor Dan Hausman tonight. Uh, Dan Hausman is the Herbert A. Simon and Hildale Professor of Philosophy at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And the philosophy department is really fortunate to have him visiting as a Ludwig M. Lachmann Fellow, uh, Research Fellow this academic year. Dan's work has centered on epistemological, metaphysical, and ethical issues at the boundaries of uh, economics and philosophy. And if this today implies that he's working in a research field that is uh, really flourishing now, then this is in no small part due to his own efforts. Uh, so Dan, in fact, played a major role in establishing the philosophy of economics as a distinct philosophical discipline. My own core teaching here at the LSE is a course on the philosophy of economics, and I'm actually really glad to see many of my students here tonight. And it's really hard to imagine what teaching such a course would be like without the influence um, of Dan's work on the field. Uh, Dan is editor of an anthology on philosophy of economics, which was first published in 1984 and is now in its third edition. It's been translated into um, Chinese, Russian, and Romanian, and it has played a big role in defining this field of philosophy and economics. He's also co-founder of the journal Economics and Philosophy, which has become the most prestigious um, outlet for work in philosophy of economics. And he's co-author of a textbook on ethical issues in economics, namely Economic Analysis, Moral Philosophy, and Public Policy, which is now also in its third edition uh, and was co-authored with Michael McPherson and Deborah Satz. Within this broad area of philosophy and economics, Dan's work has been incredibly wide-ranging, and most recently, Dan has been working on the measurement of health. Uh, amongst the many other things that he's worked on, I'd also like to point out that he's well known for his elaboration of uh, an economic methodology broadly inspired by John Stuart Mill, who was actually at one point uh, a good friend of Auguste Kant's for some time. Dan developed this methodology most prominently in his 1992 book, The Inexact and Separate Science of Economics. Uh, now, I hope that this title doesn't give you too much of a spoiler already on Dan's answer to the question he's going to be addressing tonight namely, uh, is social science possible? And this is a question that has not only occupied Auguste Kant himself, but also at least one previous Auguste Kant lecturer, namely A.J. Ayer in uh, 1964. And so I'm really excited to hear Dan's take on this question tonight with a special focus on economics. Uh, just before we start the lecture, I have to point out uh, a couple of practicalities. So first note that this event is being recorded. 
Uh, also, please put your phones on silent, but feel free to tweet about the event using the tweet hashtag uh, LSEConte. Um, the fire exit is over there. And Dan will speak for about 55 minutes, and so we're aiming for about 30 minutes of uh, Q&A in the end. And now please join me in welcoming Professor Dan Hausman. Thank you very much, Joanna, for that uh, lovely introduction. I'm really delighted to be here. Uh, the LSE has been really instrumental for me in the, my own development as a scholar. I was very lucky to be here as a centennial professor in 1994, and I was the first Ludwig Lachmann uh, research fellow in 1997. So, and it's, it's been wonderful to be here, and it's uh, wonderful to be back. I chose this topic because uh, it's a topic that August Comte had a lot to say about, and I thought that for memorial lecture on August, August uh, for the August Comte Memorial Lecture, it would be good to say something about the, uh, the man himself. It was also a chance for me to return to the issues that got me started working in philosophy of economics uh, uh, more than 25, more than 40 years ago now. Uh, and so I, I feel a little bit like a kid again going back to these issues. On the other hand, I also feel rather old returning to these issues. Now, issues about whether the social sciences can be sciences are, uh, there's nothing particularly new about this question. The question is vague and has lots of, of problems. And I'm not going to raise any brand new uh, ideas about the relationship between the natural and the social sciences or the character of the social sciences. But what I th hope to be able to do is to take some of the points and make them much more specific and precise and uh, salient to you. So, the short answer, yes, the social science, it is possible to have a social science, but, I'll add a but. Uh, and Comte agrees with this. Uh, this is from uh, uh, Comte's great work, his uh, course in positive philosophy, which he published in a number of installments. This was the very first installment, 1835. Now that the human mind has founded celestial physics, terrestrial physics, that is mechanical and chemical, and organic physics, vegetable and animal, it only remains to complete the system of observational sciences by the foundation of social physics. So what are, what are the questions? I mean, part of the lecture is going to be devoted just to try, trying to clarify the questions. So you, the question you might, might first ask is, do the social sciences differ from the natural sciences in some important ways? And yes, obviously, they differ in some important ways. Are there fundamental cognitive differences? Well, that's a little bit harder to say, because just what constitutes a fundamental cognitive dis, uh, difference I think it's reasonable to say yes to that as well. But one can also ask, can the social sciences provide firmly grounded empirical knowledge, knowledge that's comparable to the knowledge that the natural sciences provide us with? And I'm going to say yes to that as well, so I'm a yes man tonight. Uh, I'm going to focus on economics because it's the social science that I know the most about, and also because I think it's a particularly interesting case because Economics has all the accoutrements of the natural sciences, 
except perhaps some of the successes of the natural sciences. And so one wonders whether one has the pretenses of a natural science or, one, or whether one really has the ingredients of a science in economics, and I don't mean to distinguish economics from the uh, other social sciences in that regard. Here's an outline. I'm going to do a quick historical introduction, try to clarify what the question is or what the questions in the plural are, say something about why this question is worth asking. Uh, I'm then going to very quickly consider a number of uh, objections that have been made to the possibility of a social science on the basis of features of uh, human beings. I'm then going to argue for some differences in goals and concepts, which are actually quite well known. There's nothing original there. The original part of the talk, if there is an original part of the talk, comes in section six, when I try to make very specific and concrete the implications of the differences in goals and concepts that I describe in section five, and then I'll conclude. So first, the historical introduction. Uh, if one uh, looks just terminologically, in the 17th century, philosophy and the sciences weren't terminologically distinguished from one another. Uh, uh, Newton's great book on physics was, was titled by him a book on natural philosophy, but it became pretty obvious in the 17th century that some of these philosophers, namely people like Newton and Leibniz and Huygens, were doing something rather different than traditional philosophy. They were using mathematics very heavily and they were getting remarkable empirical successes. And a number of philosophers, uh, I have a couple of them here on the slide, Adam Smith and on the bottom there, and uh, David Hume on the top on the left, uh, really attempted to emulate the natural sciences with respect to the social sciences. This is particularly uh, evident in, uh, in Hume. And they came up with something that I think is really and tremendously important, and that was the idea of unintended consequences. That when you put a bunch of people together uh, who have various things that they want to accomplish, they're very clear on what their purposes are, the result of their collective action may be something very, very different than what they intended. And that creates an opening for a kind of investigation that isn't just sort of glorified journalism. I mean, if you're just looking at people's purposes and describing them, it's one thing, but if you can find systematic consequences of people's purposes that are entirely distinct from what those purposes are, then you've got something that is subject to uh, scientific investigation. And by the middle of the 19th century, philosophers like Comte and Mill were utterly convinced that the social sciences could follow in the footsteps of the natural sciences. So this is a, a summary statement uh, from a book that uh, Mill wrote specifically on Comte, uh, August Comte and Positivism, which was published in 1865. Uh, Mill had a rather uh, uh, difficult relationship with Comte. He was very, very excited about Comte's work, or a lot of Comte's work. He was appalled by Comte's attitudes toward women, for example. And uh, Comte also tried to sponge very heavily off of Mill, which Mill uh, uh, resented, and the two of them uh, definitely had a falling out. But anyway, this is Mill's uh, uh, 
description about the social sciences and particularly uh, Combe's view of them. The most complex of all, the, all sciences, the social, had not, he, that is Comte, maintained, become positive at all, but was the subject of an ever-renewed and barren contest between the theological and the metaphysical modes of thought. To make this highest of the sciences, that is sociology, it's the highest of the sciences, uh, positive and thereby, and thereby complete the positive character of all human speculations was the principal aim of his labors. Now, Mill thinks that Comte misdescribes things, that it's not as if there wasn't any positive social science before Comte came along and said, let there be positive social science. But on the contrary, I lost the screen here. Oh, on the, I'm losing, I, I apologize, my screen is flickering on and off. On the contrary, it was not therefore reserved to Monsieur Comte to make sociolo sociological inquiries positive. But what he really meant by making a science positive is what we will call, with Monsieur Littre, giving it its final scientific constitution. In other words, discovering or proving and pursuing to their consequences those of its truths which are fit to form the connecting links among the rest, truths which are to it what the law of gravitation is to astronomy, what the elementary properties of the tissues are to physiology. So Comte has a very ambitious view, and Mill uh, is inclined to grant a number of his ambitions. Now, by the late 19th century, social theorists, and I have in mind particularly a number of German uh, economists, became pretty skeptical about this. They pointed out that the social sciences, unlike physics, were really historical sciences and that uh, phenomena changed throughout history. And they were really concerned with particulars, not with just general laws, the way physics is. And moreover, their subject has practical uh, importance. Now, I'm going to say more about these things later. Uh, I think they're all true. The question is, so what? To what extent does that mark a really fundamental, a really important difference between economics or the other social sciences and the natural sciences? Now, the scientific status of economics today, I think, is controversial, but I don't think it's controversial at all among economists. Economists are really convinced that uh, what they're doing is comparable uh, to what the natural sciences are doing. Maybe not every economist, but I think that's a consensus in the uh, d discipline. Of course, that doesn't mean it's correct. So what exactly is the question, this vague question, that got me into doing philosophy of social sciences in the first, case, first place of just what distinguishes uh, the social sciences from the natural sciences, in, if anything? Well, you could be asking a lot of different questions. You might say, well, perhaps economics differs from the natural sciences in its concepts. Perhaps it differs in its ontology. It's a fancy word for those, those of you who aren't philosophers. In, it, perhaps it differs in the kinds of things that it talks about. Perhaps it differs in its goals. Perhaps it differs in its methods. Perhaps the difference is just in its credibility that it doesn't give us things that we can believe in the, as reliably as the natural sciences. Perhaps the differences lie in its relevance to uh, policy. Now, if you think about it, the compare, so we have these various different aspects in which you might compare different disciplines, but moreover, disciplines, 
it's not as if the natural sciences are all the same. If we think about a, uh, an area of science like quantum mechanics, it's both very mechanical, uh, very mathematical, and highly experimental. Geology is not particularly an experimental science, nor is it a mathematical science. It's nevertheless obviously a science. Now, I just, to illustrate this, I drew two dimensions. Sciences differ along a whole variety of other d dimensions. Uh, some of them deal with unchanging phenomena. Some of them deal with changing phenomena. Uh, some of them are quantitative. Some of them are qualitative. There's lots of differences. And so when you ask whether economics or the other social investigations can really be sciences, well, the sciences themselves are so different from one another. Are you asking, uh, are they different from every possible science? Are they different from uh, some sciences as opposed to others? And similarly, it's not like the social sciences are all uniform. Um, just within uh, economics, some parts of economics are both pretty mathematical and experimental. There's some very nifty work that's been done on auction theories. Other work's very experimental, not particularly mathematical. There's a lot of laboratory experimentation going on in economics. Econometri econometrics is reasonably mathematical, but it's not experimental, and so on and so forth. So it's really unclear what's being asked. And to get a little bearing on it, I think it's important to ask, well, why is this question important? Why bother asking it at all? Why am I occupying you here this evening? Well, this is Comp's view. The only indispensable unity of the sciences is that of method, which can and evidently must be and is already largely established. So he thought the really important question is whether social investigations can employ the same methods as the natural sciences, and he thinks they can, and this is his very rough description of that method. Finally, in the positive state, and this is related to a theory he has about how knowledge develops over time, which I'm not going to discuss. Finally, in the positive state, the human mind recognizing the impossibility of obtaining absolute truth, gives up the search after the origin and the hidden causes of the universe and a knowledge of the final causes of phenomena. It endeavors now only to discover, by a well-combined use of reasoning and observation, the actual laws of phenomena, that is to say, their invariable relations of succession and likeness. So he's saying science needs to give up speculation. It needs to focus on observable phenomena. It needs to look for invariable relations of succession and likeness. Now, this is pretty unsatisfactory, as philosophers of science nowadays recognize, but it was enormously influential. And, I mean, one way of seeing it's unsatisfactory is that uh, uh, Comte describes the method as a well-combined use of reasoning and observation. Well, that sounds pretty nice, but it also just what in the world uh, is a well-combined use of reasoning and observation. So what, in fact, distinguishes the natural sciences uh, from the social sciences? I should note, by the way, that in Comte's view, economics fails the test. Economics, in his view, isn't a positive science and couldn't be a positive science. And Mill explains why in this quote. Uh, 
and uh, this is something that's very central to Mill's view and which I think is absolutely correct. Uh, Mill writes, when an effect depends on several variable conditions, some of which change less or more slowly than others, we are often able to determine what would be the law of variation of the effect if its changes depended only on some of the conditions, the remainder being supposed constant. Most of the conclusions of social science that are applicable to practical use are of this description. Monsieur Comte's uh, system leaves no room for them. Remember, Comte wanted invariable generalizations, and the uh, generalizations that economists make use of are not invariable. It's not the case that people always want more commodities or always want more money. But in Mill's view, generalizations like that are useful and important in the social sciences. In fact, obviously, there's lots of shared methods in the natural and social sciences. We can find qualitative observation and quantitative data gathering. There's statistical analysis of data. There's derivation and testing of predictions of theories. One can find randomized control trials. There are paradigms and research programs. For those of you who aren't philosophers, that just is a reference to work philosophers have done about the various kinds of constraints that scientific communities uh, place on research and on the questions that are answered. Um, there's specialized mathematical tools in both the natural and the social sciences. There's specialized journals. But there's the question, is this just window dressing? Is economics really a genuine science? Well, what distinguishes a genuine science from a science that isn't genuine? Well, this guy, Karl Popper, who's certainly associated with this institution, offered uh, an answer to that question, an answer which was enormously influential, although very problematic. Uh, in fact, he asked two different questions, which he didn't uh, clearly distinguish from one another. The first question he asked is, what distinguishes scientific theories from theories that are not scientific? And his answer was that scientific theories are falsifiable. Not that they're false, but that they could be falsified by observation. That they're logically inconsistent with some finite set of observation statements. The problem with that is it's just false. If you take any interesting scientific theory, you can't derive various predictions about observation just from that theory. You have to supplement it with claims about uh, your measuring apparatus. You need to consider whether there might be other causes that's been left out of your theory. And in fact, this kind of very simple falsifiability is just not to be had in the sciences. Popper recognized that, uh, and he proposed the second answer. It's actually an answer to a different question. It's not an answer to the question, what distinguishes scientific theories from theories that are not scientific. It's rather, what distinguishes disciplines that are scientific from disciplines that are not scientific. And his answer was that scientists possess a critical attitude. And what he meant by that is that they subject their theories, when supplemented with auxiliary assumptions, to harsh tests and reject them when they fail those tests. So I schematized that on this slide. As a matter of logic, from a theory, various descriptions of the initial conditions, and various auxiliary assumptions, one can, as a matter of strict logic, derive 
some observations, statements, some uh, prediction of this conjunction of various factors. We then do some testing, and uh, presumably we don't always find out that the predictions of our theories are false, but sometimes we do, and that's a matter of, of observation. And then, as a matter of logic, we can conclude that either the theory is false, or we've misdescribed the initial conditions, or one or the other of the auxiliary assumptions is false, or, of course, all of those things might be false. That's as far as logic will get us. At this point, we need a methodological rule, and the critical attitude gives us such a methodological rule. That is, we don't make excuses. We decide that our theory is false. Now, a number of uh, people writing on economic methodology, I have in mind here Mark Blaug and Terence Hutchison, who were very influenced by Popper, looked at what economists did and said, uh-oh, bad boys. Uh, or boys is actually probably uh, appropriate because there are very few women in, uh, in the field of economics. Uh, that they weren't behaving properly, that when they tested their theories and got uh, disconfirmations, they held on to their theories anyway. And that's, of course, quite true of economists. But, of course, it's not true of scientists generally that they're willing to subject uh, their theories to rejection on the basis of a single untoward uh, test. Theories are enormously useful. And if you don't have a good alternative that's worth uh, investigating and your theory has some implications that appear to be false when conjoined with all these other things, you're not going to give up your theory easily. So can philosophers do any better than Popper? Well, in a way they can do better by just shutting up and not trying to answer the question. <laughs> but insofar as they try to answer the question, scientists really can't do much better. We can describe science as being characterized by lots of norms. It's a social enterprise which is uh, governed by a number of different norms. But these norms aren't unique to science. Um, and moreover, science implies employs lots of methods and techniques, but those really aren't unique to the natural sciences either. So, so far, we really have no basis for questioning whether social uh, inquiries are sciences. So, I'm now going to very briefly look at four objections which maintain that you can't have a social science because there's something special about people. And the four objections are, first of all, Look, there's human free will. Second, we can't have a science of something that's changing all the time, like human nature. Third, social theories really can't be scientific because uh, by disseminating them, we can make them true or make them false, and I'll explain that in a moment. And there's something really weird about the possibility of having a science of society because, after all, Social investigations are themselves social phenomena and subject to investigation by uh, social science. And that sort of reflexivity somehow or other is supposed to undermine the possibility of doing social science. So first of all, will free will disrupt, disrupt regularities? I mean, people obviously will do strange things and will try to disrupt various regularities. Um, and. If we suppose that science, as Comte did, that science requires exceptionless generalizations, 
and we don't allow uh, any sort of ceteris paribus or other things being equal clauses in it, well then uh, social science is uh, pretty hopeless. It's pretty hard to find exceptionalist generalizations uh, within social science. But the view that science requires absolutely exceptionalist generalizations is itself, to say the least, controversial. I don't think it's uh, justifiable. And the view that human free will means that we can't systematically theorize about people is just false. Uh, today, I staked my life on generalizations about how people behave, and probably many of you did. Uh, namely, I crossed the street when the, you know, with the light, and I expected drivers to respect the, the red light. Uh, now, of course, that is a somewhat risky thing to do, especially if you're in London or looking the wrong way as you're crossing the road. But nevertheless, we stake our lives on, the on uh, regularities in human behavior. And so either free will is consistent with there being regularities of human behavior, or there simply isn't free will, because there's obviously lots of regularities in human behavior, and there's no reason that we can't study them systematically. So science study people. Uh, I have a quote here from Mill which I think is helpful. Since then, the phenomena of man in society result from his nature as an individual. It might be thought that the proper mode of constructing a positive social science must be by deducing it from the general laws of human nature. And indeed, if you read Mill's System of Logic, sometimes it sounds as if that's actually his view. Monsieur Comte considers this as an error. But as society proceeds in its development, its phenomena are determined more and more, not by the simple tendencies of universal human nature, but by the accumulated influence of past generations over the present. The human beings themselves, on, whose, on the laws of whose, of whose nature the facts of history depend, are not abstract or universal, but are historical human beings already shaped and made what they are by human society. And then Comte's own comment, social physics must therefore be founded on a set of direct observations peculiar to itself, due regard always being paid to its relationship to physiology proper. So what Comte and Mill are concerned about is the sort of jejun, mistaken, uh, pseudoscience that one finds where you look and see how people are behaving in, the, in uh, society and you suppose that those are features of, uh, univer of universal uh, uh, human nature and uh, you then come up with generalizations which may be of certain limited use but would clearly fall far short of what a science is and the diagnosis is supposed to be that you simply don't have uh, invariant constant relations upon which to build uh, a science. And what Comte uh, recognizes, and Mill is agreeing with him here, is that there's no, there's no reason why you can't look at the way people actually behave in, uh, in a given society, recognizing that that is in large part uh, the result of a particular history, of a particular uh, environment, uh, and at the same time as recognizing that you have a generalization, you can then try to relate that to human nature and in a perfectly reputable way consider what kinds of alterations are possible. 
Clearly, a historical science is going to be somewhat different than a non-historical science, but there's nothing here that differs, for example, from the sort of problems that evolutionary biologists uh, would face. Well, what about social predictions being self-fulfilling or self-refuting? There's experimental work which suggests that studying economics makes students more self-interested. So the students here perhaps should leave right away while your moral characters are intact. Um, And it's true that one way that you can influence people's behavior is by making claims about how people actually uh, behave. That can actually be a a very, very strong way of influencing uh, how people behave. Uh, To give a much more specific example of the phenomenon, uh, I mentioned an experimental Uh, result here called the winner's curse. If you have a a group of individuals or firms who are uh, bidding for some valuable asset whose value isn't known, um, they're going to make a variety of guesses. Some some are going to guess that its value is larger than its actual value. Some will guess that its value is less than its actual value. Some may hit it on the nose. Uh, But even if they're pretty good predictors and their predictions on average are distributed around what the actual value is, the people who win the auction are going to be the people who estimated that the the asset was worth more than it really was. So there's going to be a curse on the winners. The winners are going to wind up being losers because they're going to wind up uh, bidding too much. Now, this is a phenomenon which... It makes a lot of sense. Theoretically, it's been vindicated in a good deal of experimental work. And learning about that, firms actually adjust their, uh, their bidding behavior. So the results of social, science, of social investigations, not to beg the question, the v- results of social investigations can influence the behavior that the social, investiga- uh, social investigator is studying. But there's nothing in that which says that we can't have a social science. First of all, if you're really worried about this complicating testing, you can keep the results quiet and do the test that way. Also, if these will make predictable, uh, if these will result in predictable changes in the behavior of individuals, then one of the tasks of social science is indeed to study that, and you can see whether you get that right. So although this is an interesting and sort of amusing feature, as it were, of social science, there's nothing that suggests that we can't use plain old scientific method to study social phenomena. Lastly, we have this this issue of reflexivity. Social science is obviously, obviously itself a social activity. Social scientists engage with one another. They are governed by norms, and they can be studied by sociologists of science. Uh, and you might say, well, look, if social scientists have to study themselves, doesn't that mark a really crucial methodological distinction? Well, no, because there's nothing that says that social science each and every social scientist must study himself or herself. Uh, uh, Economists who are studying financial crises don't need to study economists studying financial crises. Uh, Those who are sociologists of economics can can do that. So there's nothing in this reflexivity which uh, indicates any impossibility of social inquiries being sciences. Uh, So... Let me 
talk about these differences in goals and concepts. And as I mentioned, these are very familiar. There's nothing, you won't hear anything new about these goals, uh, about these differences in goals and concepts from me, although I think I have some things to say that are of interest about their implications. Um, Max Weber, near the beginning of the 20th century, and then a bit later, Alfred Schutz, and a number of other individuals, I just picked uh, pick these two out, emphasized that social theories must, to some extent, provide an insider's view of social life. It was not Weber's view uh, that they are confined to providing an insider's view of social life. They can go beyond that, but they need to make contact with the way agents themselves think about, uh, uh, think about their actions and think about the actions of others. And if you think about it, there's a good reason for that. What are the mechanisms whereby uh, societies manage to function, people manage to cooperate with one another, or uh, develop conflicts with one another? It's in virtue of, their, of people's understanding of one another, and their understanding of one another uh, involves lots of different uh, psychological generalizations. And if the social scientist is unable to grasp those generalizations, uh, is unable to bring his or her theory in contact with those generalizations, then the social scientist is unable to uh, discuss the mechanisms of uh, social life. And so this is, it's a familiar point. It's a point that's well over a century old. Uh, and I think it's a correct point. So what? So I'm going to call this the Verstehen requirement. Verstehen, of course, being the German word for understanding. And it's, and it's often described as the social scientist needs to provide us with the ability to understand social phenomena. And usually you have to say understand in a really deep way to sort of <laughs> capture what's, uh, what's going on here. Um, so why impose it? I've said why, uh, why impose it because it's really necessary if you want to make any sense out of the mechanisms that uh, drive uh, uh, human interactions. It's not required of every single social theory. There's no reason whatsoever that, there, that every social theory must do that. It's rather that through the networks of social theory there needs to be a connection. Economics, in fact, satisfies it. Uh, maybe not every bit of economics, it's not my view, but if you look at what economists have to say about the explanation of individual behavior, individual behavior is explained in terms of people's beliefs or subjective probabilities, and it's explained in terms of preferences where preferences really amalgamate all the different kinds of, uh, uh, of factors that we take to uh, explain uh, human behavior. So the question is, why does this matter? And that's what I'm going to move on to. Um, well, actually, before I move on to it, I just want to very briefly uh, comment. In the 1950s and 1960s, a bunch of philosophers thought this was like unbelievably important and that it actually meant that, we, that the social sciences were radically distinct from the natural sciences, that they that social behavior, I'm quoting from Peter Winch, who is one of the leading figures, uh, social behavior cannot be grasped except in terms of the concept of rule following and rule governed behavior. And grasping rule following in his view and in the view of others required understanding meanings. And thus, the methods of the social sciences are interpretive and 
fundamentally unlike empirical inquiry in the natural sciences. And that's the view that's uh, discussed at length by A.J. Ayer in the previous uh, comp lecture, which was really on just the same subject that I'm uh, addressing uh, that uh, Joanna referred to. And he does an uh, able job of criticizing these, these views. I don't want to take much time here, but just pretty obviously, the existence of a rule does not by itself explain when and why it's followed. We need to think about people's expectations. We need to think about uh, uh, incentives. Uh, here's an uh, uh, extreme example. Uh, in France, in 1799, a law was passed which made it illegal for women to wear trousers. Uh, it was repealed in 2012, so it was on the books for a very long time. Uh, but simply knowing what the rules were wouldn't have enabled you to explain much uh, of the uh, phenomena. Uh, and the view that we, ne we need to interpret behavior, and I think in many cases we do need to interpret behavior, doesn't show that causal explanation is uh, ruled out. There's no reason why interpretation and causal explanation are mutually exclusive. So let me move on then to uh, the most substantive part, and that is the methodological implications of what I call the Verstehen requirement. And there's three general implications which I hope to try to make fairly specific. First of all, that in the social sciences, there's a role for uh, a subjective view as well as an objective view. There's the, re there's the actions as studied by the social scientists, but then there's also the perception and understanding of those actions and of other things by the agents, and that the social scientist needs to get inside the head of the agents. Uh, secondly, that explanations of individual choices, which of course isn't the whole of the social sciences, but is a considerable part of them, uh, involve citing reasons. And citing reasons has some special features which I want to discuss. And thirdly, that the social sciences have a special normative relevance. Uh, and again, I'm going to explain exactly what I mean by those. So first of all, to talk about the role for uh, subjectivity, and let me give a really dramatic example, which was the Great Wall Street Crash in 1929, which of course was followed by the uh, uh, Great Depression. Uh, as probably everybody knows, even those of you who are quite young, there was a massive drop in the um, uh, American stock exchanges in 1929, and a number of people were totally wiped out. And it was, uh, it was a financial disaster for stockholders. However, in 1929, the proportion of the American population that owned stock was really very small. And if we add to that those people whose livelihood depended on stock owners, we still had a pretty small portion of the population. So if you just looked at what, what would be the effect of the, this loss of asset value on the economy, you would never have predicted uh, the Great Depression. And indeed, by itself, you shouldn't have predicted the Great Depression. However, there was an enormous psychological effect. People who were thinking about, gee, maybe I'll buy a new stove or a new car or build a new house. Well, this isn't the time to do that. Things look like they might really be falling apart or um, 
uh, owners of companies certainly weren't going to invest in uh, expanding their inventories or building new factories. Lots of people looking at this crash thought there's going to be a depression. And thinking there was going to be a depression, they made it the case that there was going to be a depression by their actions. And so if we, we need to look at... Now, you can say, well, it's not as if we don't look at facts. We're looking at facts about people's beliefs. But we have to look at reality both as it is from our perspective, but also as it is from the uh, agent's uh, uh, perspective. And so the, we have this subjective element. Uh, another way of uh, illustrating it is sort of quasi-logical. If we're just dealing with facts, we can make the inference that's on the left-hand side of this slide, not a very interesting inference. If we look at the right-hand side, we really, can't make the, we really can't draw any conclusions about what's going to happen from George's, uh, from George's belief. We can perhaps draw an inference, not a deductive inference, from the second premise, but George's belief then winds up being uh, irrelevant to it. That we need to have both a subjective or, or a view from the perspective of the agents involved and an objective view. Now, I'm not saying that in any way, it's not my view that a subjective view rules out explanatory generalizations. Obviously, a lot of people's beliefs are true. It's not as if I'm supposing that people only have false or strange beliefs. And however, and of course, there's lots of agreement among beliefs, but we have this possibility of mistakes and disagreement, and that uh, really requires us to think about social phenomena in a somewhat different way than the way we think about natural phenomena. So the second methodological implication I want to talk about is that when we're explaining individual choices, and as I said, that's not the only thing we're doing, but when we're explaining individual choices, we cite people's reasons. Well, I don't think that means that we're not giving causal explanations. It's my view, and here I'm following a very um, uh, this, uh, celebrated paper of Donald Davidson's uh, published in the early 1960s. In my view, if we, if we explain people's behavior by citing their reasons, we're giving a causal explanation. And if the reasons we cite aren't the causes of their behavior, then, then we're not really explaining their behavior. Uh, I can illustrate what I mean by an example like the following. Uh, suppose I have a neighbor, call her Mary, who goes to church regularly uh, on, uh, on Sunday, and I ask her why she does so. She says, well, I'm really grateful for my good fortune. I believe in God, and I, it really makes me feel good to give thanks to God every, uh, every Sunday. Now, that's a good reason to go to church, but the question is, does that explain why she goes to church? She's a real estate agent. She, makes, she meets a lot of potential uh, clients at church. It's a social life for her. Of course, all of those are good reasons. All of those might collectively explain what she's doing, but if we want to know which of those reasons actually explains her action, then I think we're asking a causal question. Which of those reasons causes uh, her actions? So I don't think the fact that our explanations of social behavior involve citing reasons means that we're not giving causal explanations. I think we are giving causal explanations. Where I think the fact that we're citing reasons is important is that reasons can be assessed. When we look at reasons, we can ask the question, is that a good reason? Is it a, is it a, a sensible reason? So 
Uh, and we can assess reasons along a wide variety of different dimensions. We can assess reasons prudentially, you know, from the perspective of this person's uh, interests, uh, is the f what they're citing as the reason for their action or what, I, or what the social scientist is citing for the reason of their actions, actually uh, the sort of thing that would promote this individual's interests. We can obviously assess reasons morally. We can, uh, you know, get, we can assess reasons in terms of whatever purposes uh, the, uh, the individual uh, may have. But uh, we can look at reasons as being good reasons or bad reasons. Now, why is that important? Well, as I said, there's many possible dimensions of values. It's important because when we're citing reasons, which we uh, can assess as being good reasons or bad reasons or really no, not reasons at all, in citing reasons, we're justifying or criticizing what they're reasons for the beliefs, preferences, and actions of individuals. And if what we cite as a reason can't intelligibly be seen as a reason, that will undermine its causal force. Uh, let me give you a really weird example. You may think that I'm a little nuts in giving you the example. Um, suppose I have a friend, call him George. I see him go into a bookstore and buy a copy of David Copperfield, walks out with the book. And I ask him, oh, why'd you buy a copy of David Copperfield? And he says to me, uh, it's really important to treat animals well. And you know, turnips are very nourishing. Well, I would be a little confused by that. And I would say, that's your reason for buying the book? Well. He's citing the right kinds of factors. He's citing a factor that he takes to be valuable that from a third person perspective we can see as a preference to treat animals well. Uh, he's citing a fact uh, which he believes, which is indeed quite true, turnips are indeed nourishing. But we're not willing to accept that as, uh, as an explanation, not because he didn't cite the right kinds of things, but because there's, there isn't a reason there's no way in which those phenomena justify his behavior. Now, of course, it could be that he had a very strange brain lesion whereby this evaluative thought, be nice to animals, and this factual thought, turnips are nourishing, somehow or other the wires got crossed in his brains and it led him to go in and buy David Copperfield. But when he's standing there and we're saying, is that your reason, unless there's further malfunction in his mental capacities, he's going to go, that's not a reason at all. I'm going to go return this book. Uh, so the fact that some, whether something can be justified, whether one can see something minimally as a reason at all, because you, you have to be able to justify something to see it as a reason, is itself going to affect what kinds of explanations uh, are going to be acceptable, and it will affect behavior uh, itself. The assessment of reasons really affects their causal force. And, of course, there's really nothing quite like this, or I don't think there's nothing, anything like this at all in the natural sciences. Incidentally, I think this explains the fact that in explaining people's behavior, we cite their reasons, also explains 
why it is that rational choice theory is central in economics and indeed crucial in the social sciences in general, namely that if we don't attribute to people at least some minimal rationality, then uh, it's in, they're incapable of being governed by reasons. So the last of the normative implications, uh, the last of the methodological implications, and that is I think the social sciences have a certain normative stance or relevance which is different than the natural sciences. Now, all of the sciences have a role with respect to action, have a uh, practical role, a normative role, and one can illustrate it with this very simple inadequate but nevertheless useful schema that I put on this slide that we can see people's uh, choices of behavior is governed by factual uh, premises which may be provided by science or everyday knowledge and also by value, uh, uh, evaluative premises and these although independent of one another jointly give us reason to do one thing or another justify or condemn certain things uh, and thus have a normative relevance. Now, I think that not necessarily all of the social sciences, but a good deal of the social sciences have an additional normative relevance. As I mentioned when I was discussing reasons, justification and criticism is something that comes along with uh, explaining people's behavior in terms of their reasons. And justification and criticism, of course, are evaluations. There are evaluations, first of all, of the reasons, but then there are also evaluations of the actions for which these reasons are uh, uh, cited. And in terms of justifying or criticizing reasons, we're guiding those who will guide our theorizing, but they will also guide people's conduct. Because, of course, uh, the actions of the social scientist and the actions of agents are not entirely distinct from one another. And the values of actors and of theorists thus have a role in guiding uh, uh, inquiry. And that means that the social investigator can find himself or herself in the position of recommending or uh, uh, condemning actions that he or she merely attempts to explain. So let me give you a somewhat silly illustration of what I have in mind. Um, it's said that a reporter once asked the American bank robber, uh, Willie, Willie, well, Willie Sutton, sorry, I almost forgot the name, uh, why is it that you rob banks? And he responded, well, that's where the money is. Uh, now, it's, that seems like sort of an odd answer because most of us don't take it for granted that of course you're going to rob something or other and the only question is whether you're going to rob banks or whether you're going to rob uh, uh, other things. Uh, but of course Willie, Hutt, Willie Sutton took that for granted. In a similar way, in an economics course uh, or in the writing of an economist, if you explain uh, a socially destructive action of a corporation. Let's say a corporation uh, dumps pollutants into a, a pristine environment and uh, destroys the environment. And you say, well, look, here were the options. This was the profit-maximizing uh, uh, action. You know, and that explains why the, you do it. 
implicitly, you wind up being in the same position as, as uh, uh, Willie Sutton when he says, well, what explains why I robbed banks is where the money is. You know, what explains why the, uh, the company dumps these pollution is well, that's what maximizes profits. And to take that as a good reason, and of course, it's a good reason with respect to certain objectives, but it's easy to slide between different, between different uh, objectives, and the economist can unwittingly, I'm not supposing the economist is praising or offering any kind of, intends to be offering any kind of moral assessment of the action of uh, the firm, unwittingly by simply taking this as, oh, well, obviously that was what maximized profits, uh, one can wind up being in the position of offering um, a moral justification, which of course is not what the uh, economist intends to offer. I should mention, by the way, that there's an additional normative relevance. It's pretty obvious and uh, unpleasant, and that is that there's a number of economists who are, as it were, just simply hired hacks. Uh, right now, there's uh, uh, a great deal of concern in the United States about whether there should be uh, dramatic uh, uh, drops in tax rates paid by rich people. And an economist who can say, doing that will be great for the economy. Everyone's going to prosper. It's going to make everything wonderful. Tax, uh, tax revenues will increase. It's, you know, it's a cat's meow. You know, there's money in that uh, to be able to say things like that. I'm lucky. Nobody wants to buy my services. Uh, actually, I was once paid $25 by George Soros to give him philosophical uh, advice. Uh, I was a graduate student at the time, and so $25 looked pretty good, but uh, that's the extent of the uh, uh, bribery, as it were. So basically, there's a, a demand for cooking the books that uh, economists face, and not all of them resist the temptation. I don't think one wants to tar the entire uh, uh, profession with the uh, vices of some of them. And of course, one can find similar things in the natural sciences. There are um, reputable people who will uh, deny that there's been any human influence on global warming. And once again, there's some considerable uh, financial inducements to do that. So that's an additional place where norms come in. Uh, it's pretty obvious. Marx called it. Uh, the problem of the furies of private interest. So just very quickly to conclude, because I've gone over by a few minutes, uh, I've mentioned a number of distinctive features of social science, or specifically the economics. Their subject matter is the behavior of human beings endowed with reason. Their generalizations are not universal. The generalizations of social inquiries are not unchanging. The objects of social inquiries can be influenced by what social investigators say about them. And none of those things, I think, are really all that significant. I then emphasize that the explanatory variables of parts of social inquiries are continuous with the concepts used by economic agents. And I think that has some important implications that the central explanatory concepts of economics, beliefs and preferences, are subjective, intentional, not directly observable, that explanations of actions cite reasons which are subject to assessment, and their causal force depends on that assessment, 
that economics is built around a theory of rationality, which is a corollary of that. Uh, and that, lastly, I mentioned that because the findings of economics are so important to people's interests, they may, in some cases, be biased. Well, thank you very much. Oh, just one thing. I don't think one should end any paper on economics without a graph. So here's one graph for you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dan. Um, this was really fascinating. Uh, we'll now take questions from the floor. And I'd like to ask you to keep your questions um, fairly short and to um, briefly introduce yourself at the beginning of asking your question. And so please raise your hands, and I'll keep a list, and we'll try to get as many questions as possible in, in the next half hour or so. Um, yes. Uh, thanks very much. Um, I'm Stuart Theobald. I'm a recent PhD graduate from the department. I wondered if the increasing call on economists to become designers and get involved in actually implementing social engineering outcomes makes them more or less scientific. Is there a, social, a science of social engineering that uh, uh, we can see as scientific in the same way as economists as positive scientists? That's a, that's a really great question. Um, I really don't know what to say. Uh, uh, one could say that in uh, being engaged in the development of policy, it's really not very different than an engineer who's engaged in building some um, uh, public project, and so that there's really no fundamental difference there. Um, but it's not a, I haven't thought about your question, and I, I really don't know what to say. I think it's an interesting thing to think about. So, Luke Bobins, I'm a professor here at the Department of Philosophy, Logic, and Scientific Methods. Um, so, I'm sort of wondering, I feel like, you know, when you sketch what's going on in the social sciences, I mean, it seems very ecumenical. It's like, oh, we can all get along because this is what we're studying, and, you know, we can bring Schutz and Durkheim and Weber all together, and, you know, there's, there, there doesn't need to be this sort of deep distinction, right? But at the same time, you know, the history of our discipline is so much, you know, methodological warfare, right? I mean, it's the nomothetic versus the ideographical sciences. That's how they called it in the, you know, beginning of the 20th century. And then there was sort of, are you for or against Kinko, Hain, and Verba, right? Also splitting departments in international relations. I mean, so how do you see that sort of warfare on the background of your, you know, ecumenical disposition? Um. Well, let me try to limit that to, uh, to, to uh, uh, economics and different schools of, uh, of economics who are contesting with one another. And of course, uh, in many cases, the methodological arguments were really uh, in support of very substantive uh, differences that, that they held. Uh, so I think Part of it is that some of the methodological disagreements were exaggerated. Secondly, I think there's been a lot of methodological confusion and uh, mistake, and that uh, taking the points that people like Weber and Schutz uh, made and taking them as uh, a bar to 
theorizing that actually formulates generalizations and tests and the like, which Weber himself was not opposed to, but which uh, later figures were. And I think that there was uh, the view that once we recognized uh, this element of interpretation, that that somehow or other had much more dramatic uh, consequences than I'm willing to uh, than I'm willing to uh, to grant. Um, in addition, I'm trying to think of. I had a third point that I was going to say, which is uh, 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 slipped out of my uh, uh, consciousness. Um, well, I mean, in addition, there were obviously also very specific methodological uh, differences uh, among uh, uh, different uh, economists. Um, so I think that's adequate to explain why uh, there's been a lot of warfare uh, uh, among economists. Plus, of course, there's different schools of economics have also been connected with different uh, uh, political projects. And of course, that's going to be a source of a great deal of conflict, uh, which in many cases will get translated into a methodological uh, disagreement when in fact what's really going on is, is a political disagreement. Hi. Uh, my name is Ram Kwaesa. I'm a postdoc at Cambridge. Um, you made a lot of the uh, importance of rational choice to, um, to the social sciences. And I was wondering if you, would, if you would go so far as to say that this is kind of a necessary aspect of the social sciences. I mean, one might be a kind of Churchland-style eliminativist and think that uh, we should get rid of talk about desire, belief, um, and maybe then your methodological implications wouldn't seem so, so relevant, but maybe you think that's the wrong way to go, or maybe this kind of thing is fundamentally ineliminable. So could you comment about that, please? Um, well, I don't think it's ineliminable from every social scientific project. I do think it's ineliminable in social science in general. So if you take seriously the project of the Churchlands, for example, that you know, what we need to do is get rid of this uh, primitive unscientific way of thinking about people in terms of their desires and beliefs and get to what's really driving people, uh, I think that's a mistake. Uh, it's not as if I don't think that we could have uh, much more detailed and useful neurological theories and find the under, underpinnings of this, but the notion that we're going to explain how people interact with one another and we're going to suppose that, that we're going to have a theory of how they interact with one another that will make no reference at all to how they think about one another, uh, what they uh, take people as aiming at in performing one act or another. I just think that's fantastic. Uh, I find it so radically implausible uh, that uh, uh, I find it hard to understand how people endorse it. At the same time, I have a certain hesitation because uh, every time a philosopher sort of says science can't do this, the scientists turn around and do it, but my limited imagination can't, uh, can't fathom how that could be, uh, be possible. I'm Judith Shapiro, and I'm an economist, and I wanted also to talk about the rational 
question which you had right near the end because it leaped out at me. Uh, that is, as you know, I'm sure, uh, there's been quite a movement in economics which finally even reached people like me uh, on behavioral economics on assuming that we can, or we can have in the words of the most flamboyant of the uh, behavioral economists, Dan Ariely, predictably irrational. And I think the predictive power is what did get to me and some of the insights, I'll just give you one, I'd like your reaction then, which is uh, the idea of projection bias, uh. which uh, David Labson did. The idea that we, we think right now that it's going to be the way it is right now forever. Uh, and a, a good example, a trivial one, not to do with depression or suicide, for example, is simply that if we have a cold winter, it's pretty predictable people will book very hot holidays. <laughs> And they will book differently if it's a warm winter. And the question of how we deal procrastination, how we deal with tomorrow, and that we're timing consistent, and those things, it seems to me, we can do without actually making uh, rationality quite as central. Now, maybe you're going to say, I think I can predict what you'll say, that, well, we can have all these things, so let, let it another hundred flowers bloom. But it seems to me that that was quite a breakthrough in economics in explaining things, including, I think, the 1929 question, as you've had it. Uh, so I wondered what your reaction is to this movement. Are we, are we actually going in economics beyond what we should be doing by changing our assumptions this way? Thanks. It's a, uh, it's a great question and enables me also to clarify what I've said in a way because it uh, uh, could easily have been interpreted uh, in a different way than uh, I intended. Uh, I don't mean in any way to be uh, a critic of behavioral economics and I think a lot of the findings are uh, well established and of, uh, of uh, general interest. Um, and they certainly show that people are not rational in certain senses. So if you take as defining rationality that people have a, a complete and transitive preference relation that they sort of carry around with them and uh, use in every context, clearly that's been uh, refuted uh, uh, powerfully by be uh, behavioral economics. On the other hand, there's nothing in behavioral economics which challenges the view that people's behavior is governed by their, uh, their beliefs and their desires at the moment. Uh, what the, a lot of what has been discovered is that their desires depend on lots of different things than we thought they depended upon, and moreover that people uh, really sort of make up or create their desires on the fly depend and, uh, and that their uh, rankings of alternatives are, heavy, are heavily influenced by features of the context that intuitively think is uh, highly uh, irrational. So what I meant by saying that uh, uh, in order to explain behavior, we have to assume that people are rational. I didn't mean that we have to assume that they satisfy all the axioms of, uh, of rational choice theory but that uh, we have to be able to, cons uh, to construe them as uh, uh, being sensitive to 
various factors that influence the value of alternatives, being sensitive to various uh, factual matters, as being subject to the possibility of being ex of uh, some sort of belief, desire, uh, uh, explanation. So I meant something uh, quite minimal by the notion that we need to, um, that the notion of s some kind of rationality is being fundamental to the social sciences. Um, I should have been more careful in the way I described that. So I, I really appreciate the question. The person in red up there. Um, yeah, hello, my name is Tristan. Here, there. Here up there. There. Here. Ah, okay. So, here. Sorry. Hello. Hello. <laughs> Um, so I'm a student of economics and philosophy, um, and because it came up in one of our lectures, I was just curious if you had the possibility to give your personal textbook definition of economics. Um, on the one hand side, what would it be, and what would you like it to be for the next coming years? Um, that's a, a, a really hard question, uh, a really interesting question. Um, Mill, when he addresses the question of the definition of economics, argues that the issue of definition really comes last, as it were. Uh, there's basically two ways to go. Uh, a lot of economists, I, don't, I think this is fundamental to sort of mainstream economics, uh, define economics really in terms of certain exogenous variables. There are certain variables that economists see as governing people's behavior, and that really defines the discipline, which means that the discipline extends really far beyond talking about market behavior and uh, 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 businesses and consumers. It extends to really uh, any subject matter where you see people as attempting to promote their, uh, their own interests of having choices between uh, uh, alternatives which are uh, 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 competing with, uh, with one another and where they face uh, certain kinds of constraints. And that once we've got those causal factors, that's what defines the discipline. Uh, I've got my doubts about that way of, uh, of proceeding, and I think the discipline is uh, that uh, basically, if you look at all the activities that economists are actually engaged in, if you look through economic uh, journals, the stuff that you find there, that's, that's what defines the discipline. And that's really not just in terms of the exogenous variables, it's also in terms of which kinds of phenomena uh, economists are interested uh, in explaining in terms of the endogenous variables as well. But I don't think that it's very useful to try to come up with any precise definition of uh, economics. I think any definition you offered would be heavily normative, would say this is what real economics is, and the sort of thing that people at Minnesota do, that's, that, you know, that's just nonsense. Um, and I'm not in a position to do that and don't really want to try. There's another question in the middle up there. Thanks. Uh, my name is Andres Sainz de Cecilia. I teach at UCL. Um, I've got two clarificatory questions. Um, you jumped at the beginning of your talk right into talking about the relationship between natural science and social science. Uh, I don't recall you giving a definition of what science itself is 
or the sense in which you're using it. Now, that may seem self-evident, but I don't think it is. I think even within the more narrow scope of philosophy of social science, that's uh, controversial. And then I think it gets a lot more controversial if you start to think about the different senses which are accrued to the term in different uh, European traditions and then traditions beyond that. And secondly, following from that, um, it seemed in a sense implicit in your talk that you were using science uh, on the model of the natural sciences. Sorry, I uh, couldn't hear the last thing you said. Uh, so it seemed implicit in the talk as well that you were using the term science in the sense of the natural sciences. So you would be modeling what science is on the natural sciences. Uh, is that true? And are you suggesting that we should judge social science uh, in its scientificity against natural science? Um, well, what, what I, I meant to say was that I really have no good way of characterizing precisely what science is. That if you look at attempts to do so, and I, I went through Popper's attempt to, to do so, uh, they, they really break down. I don't think that there is any simple characterization of, uh, of what science is. Now, of course, I have to have some idea what I'm talking about when I talk about science. If I say, look, there's no simple characterization of it, well, there's got to be something or other to be said about it. And so I take science as being exemplified by what goes on in the natural sciences. Uh, because there, there's very little controversy about whether what, uh, what people was going on counts as science or not. If you look at um, certain areas of anthropology, some people would say that's science, some people would say it's not science. I wasn't attempting to take a stand on that. I was sort of allowing as a rough characterization of science as what goes on in the natural sciences. And in particular, in asking, um, my title actually was suggested by Alex Verhoeven here. It wasn't my original title. My uh, original title, uh, I don't recall exactly what it was, but basically was, you know, can the social sciences be sciences like the natural sciences? And so I was asking whether uh, they can possess the kinds of structure, methods, concepts, uh, uh, credibility that the natural sciences uh, uh, can have. So that was the context in which I was addressing the question, is social science possible? Uh, it's, of course, entirely uh, legitimate to say uh, that I have a very, and which you might want to say, I don't know, that there's an entirely different notion of what constitutes uh, a science which is uh, exemplified in very, very different kinds of activities than what physics do. And there's a real question about whether what physicists do really would count as a science with respect to that notion. I was going the other way around. I was taking what uh, physicists, chemists, biologists, geologists do, as different as it is, as exemplifying something or other that one could ask whether the social sciences were like that. And then I was trying to refine the question with respect to particular aspects. Hello, Jason Alexander, professor of philosophy in the department here. So I wanted to return to the normative notion that you ended on, the idea that the social sciences involve evaluation of reasons. Yes. And, and it seems that there's a great dissimilarity then between, if you think of, say, physics, 
chemistry, geology, uh, evolutionary biology, and the social sciences, and whether or not that normative component is present. And I was thinking about Davidson's paper, Psychology as Philosophy. And as, as you remember, the reason he suggests that title is because psychology or anything that involves evaluation of reasons needs to make sense of what a good reason is, what's an appropriate reason, and that actually makes it much more akin to philosophy rather than something like physics. And so I was just wondering whether the answer to the question of whether the social sciences are possible actually should be a bit different than what you suggested, which is insofar as the normative component plays such a central, ineliminable role, then the social sciences are much more like philosophy rather than physics. Um, I don't remember the uh, Davidson paper. I'm sure I've read it, but it was a long time ago, and I, uh, I don't recall it. It sounds like I ought to reread it. Um, I'm a little bit worried there because um, to say that we're evaluating reasons and it thus becomes like philosophy, I think the way in which we're evaluating reasons is much simpler. I, is typically much simpler, much cruder than the way we're evaluating reasons uh, w within uh, 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 philosophy. So uh, if we, if instead of taking a crazy example like my example of someone buying um, uh, a copy of David uh, Copperfield, uh, if we take something which is uh, sort of m m much uh, simpler and we suppose that let me see what I want to use as a, 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 an example. Uh, well, uh, we, uh, we, we see someone who is uh, 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 decided to take a, a long walk every day in order to lose, in order to lose weight. And we notice that, they're, that they're, given their diet, they couldn't possibly be losing weight, and so we criticize their reason, we evaluate their reason. And you could say, well, that's sort of like philosophy, but as the students here will recognize, that's not a whole lot like philosophy. It's a lot easier than, than philosophy. So there may be a certain continuity there, but I'm not sure that uh, one can leap from we're evaluating reasons to we're doing something pretty much just like philosophers are doing. The person back there in the gray suit. Hi, Paul Mar. I'm a postdoc at the University of Virginia in the States. So I guess it's a Comptian-type question, not just is social science possible, but is social science desirable as an aspirational state for any particular field of inquiry? So I was thinking about fields of inquiry that we often think of as not scientific at all, and then methodological debates you might have within those fields about whether they should be made social scientific. So think of aesthetics or architectural aesthetics specifically, right? You might have some people who say, when deciding what the next sort of building style ought to be for LSE when it expands again, right? We need a scientific approach to deciding whether it should be a neoclassical building or something more modern looking, something in a different vein entirely. And you might have some who think that there's, there's no way in which the kinds of scientific methodologies that you described could be applied to something like that. I take it someone like Comte would think, no, this is a field of social activity and undertaking that ought to be brought onto a scientific basis. Um, it doesn't come up with economics because the economists are already sort of quite desirous of being taken seriously as a science, but I wonder what you think about moving other fields that, that don't now sort of desire to be scientific into this direction. Thank you. It's a really interesting question. Thank you. 
Um, um, I don't think that there are normative sciences in the sense of sciences which investigate uh, uh, you know, what our ultimate ends are. And so I think that with respect to your architectural example, your aesthetic example, um, I don't see how we could have a science of that until we've specified what the objectives are. Once we've specified what the objectives are, then I don't see that scientific investigation of um, uh, the various consequences of doing one thing or, uh, or another would be out of place. It's not my area of expertise, and so I can't sort of be, uh, be detailed. But um, the question about what ends we ought to have uh, and whether there's a fact-value distinction, uh, you know, I don't think there's a sharp fact-value distinction, but I do think there's a very important rough distinction to be drawn there. And uh, I don't think that normative activities can be studied in... Uh, I shouldn't put it that way, that uh, the investigation of ends can be studied in the same way as the natural sciences study their subject matter and the social sciences study their subject matter. Um, we've got four more minutes and five questions, so if you could just keep your questions quite short and probably won't get through all of them, but uh, let's try. Uh, Richard. Uh, Richard Bradley from the philosophy department here. So, so I wanted to invoke another of our famous predecessors, Imre Lakatos, who also had a go at saying what the boundaries were between science and yes. non-science, which, and, and his characterization put a lot more emphasis on progress, and yes. in particular on the, the issue of whether there's progress in making predictions. He put a lot of emphasis on this notion of a novel predictions. Yes. So sort of setting aside whether this really gives you a boundary between science and science, it, I mean, do you think that this is something that economics and social sciences more generally has you know, not been achieving? Uh, as many people, I think, think, that the sort of prediction has really moved nowhere and there's not a novel prediction to be seen anywhere. Yeah. Um, well, you sound like Alex Rosenberg, and uh, uh, I think that's uh, re uh, really uh, exaggerated. Uh, I wish I had a good example off the top of my head. You know, it's very embarrassing to answer that by saying, well, of course there are, but I can't name any. Uh, <laughs> But uh, uh, I, I do think that's uh, uh, too pessimistic, and I do think that there are uh, novel predictions. I think that, uh, for example, some of the work in auction theory uh, could be uh, marshaled to show that there is progress. It's slower, but it's a very different kind of, uh, uh, of discipline. One's dealing with uh, phenomena that are subject to an enormous range of different causal factors at, in an uncontrolled way. Uh, and insofar as you do have the possibility of control in experimental circumstances, there certainly are predictions that are tested and they don't always fail. Hi, um, I'm William Matcham. I'm an economics PhD student here at LSE. Uh, I wanted to ask your opinion on the following, which was a focus on truth and truth or false rather than a focus on uh, something else, what I believe in, which is a focus on usefulness and understanding. So... There's debate about whether you know, theories are true or false, and I personally think the focus should be on whether it's useful or we like, can gain understanding from it. So the example which I use for this is the London Tube map, which geographically is a complete mess. 
uh, the subway, if you tried to look at the true paths of the line, you wouldn't be able to get anywhere, or it would take you longer than if you just walked. So we have this uh, picture which simplifies it, which is, of course, not true at all to these graphic, geographic positions of things, but it helps us a lot, so I think that's useful. Um, so I just wondered if you, if, you, know, you think we focus too much on, on truth or not, because when I was studying economics as an undergraduate, I, I criticized myself now on, when I looked at things and I thought this is not true, therefore it's kind of the economics is rubbish and I wasn't happy with it, whereas now I'm happy to view it as is this actually useful rather than true or not? Uh, it's a big question and in two minutes I can't possibly address it in general. So this is going to be very uh, schematic. Uh, unless we're dealing with phenomena which are unobservable, I don't think things are useful unless they're true. So if you look at the tube map, if the question is, does this give us the, a correct geographical representation of London, the answer is false. Does it give us a correct representation of the order of stations and of which lines will take us which places? Yes, it does. And if it weren't true, you know, we, we'd be in big trouble. Good. Unfortunately, that's all that we've got um, time for. So I'd like to thank you all for coming and for asking such great questions. And most of all, thanks again to Dan Hausman for the wonderful lecture. Thank you.